The following presentation was recorded live at the 2014 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, visit www.bioneers.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Leveraging Donor Activism Conversation. I'm Jen Sokolov from the Compton Foundation, and I'll be moderating the conversation today among the terrific panelists we've gathered to speak with you. For those of you who like a plan, here's how our time together is going to go. I'm going to offer a few brief introductions to myself and our presenters, as well as the, the topic we plan to tackle. Then they'll share a bit about themselves and their innovative work. I'll ask them a few questions to dig just a little bit deeper and generate some discussion across the panel, and then we'll open it up for questions from you. What's the panel about? The inspiration for this panel is the urgent need for philanthropic investment across a range of issues in this moment. Name the issue, and we are struggling for the social change to, necessary to address it. Climate change, peace, food systems, fresh water, economic justice and poverty, criminal justice and mass incarceration, racial justice, reproductive rights and justice, you name it, we're pretty much not winning. Yet philanthropy in its traditional form annually giving away about 5% of a significant corpus, dependent on the success of financial markets for annual grants budgets, and often fairly detached from the everyday work of grantees, has some what we might call substantial blind spots and has really struggled to match the need for its resources. In this conversation, we hope to explore how philanthropy and donor activism are being reinvented today to better serve the needs of this time. Just so you know a little bit about me, Compton is a small family foundation in San Francisco, and we have tried to shift these patterns a bit. We've always given more than 5%, and mostly over the last decade, closer to 10% of our endowment each year. Our investments are close to 100% mission aligned, and we are increasingly thinking about an all-in approach to philanthropy, trying to figure out which kinds of resources can most effectively catalyze the change that we want to see on the issues we care about. As part of this effort, we were one of the first foundations to join the Divest Invest philanthropy effort, which you'll hear more about later. But we are just dipping our toes into the water compared to the speakers we have with us today. We're lucky to be joined by four people who are playing a really critical role in reimagining what philanthropy might look like and what innovations might be possible in leveraging resources for social change. Kristen Hall, our first speaker, began trying to make change at the individual and classroom scale as a bilingual elementary school teacher. And the way I see it, although <laughs> we haven't, I haven't run this by her yet, ever since then, she's been exploring how to increase the scale of her impact. She began looking at the whole field of education. She then broadened her sights to consider how to align mission with investments across the portfolio of her family foundation. And then, still not ready to rest, she began strategizing about how to provide tools for the broader field to begin to do the same with a new institution she formed with Domini called NIA Global Solutions. Jennifer Ancona, our second presenter, comes to this work with deep experience in strategic communications and storytelling from both philanthropy and activism. She worked for many years with the online organizing groups housed at the Citizen Engagement Lab which include Presente, Color of Change, Forecast the Facts, and Ultraviolet. And she's advised a number of donors on how to engage their resources in building a progressive economic narrative. She now leads on membership and communications at the Women Donors Network, and will share with us a bit about the creative collaborative funding strategies at WDN, 
and the way it promotes shared community learning right at that intersection of philanthropy and advocacy. Like Kristen, our third speaker, Lauren Embry, leads a family foundation. The Embry Family Foundation is based in Dallas, where Lauren has helped to build a massive, place-based, long-term effort to address racial equity in her city, giving her a great perspective on how a donor can engage over time on a complicated issue within a community and what that really takes. They have also made a commitment to spending down the corpus of the foundation much more quickly than usual, another decision that can be quite challenging for a foundation, and she'll share some of the rationale and story for that choice. Like Jennifer, our last speaker, Tom Van Dyke, has crossed back and forth repeatedly between activism and philanthropy, and he's also spent most of his career engaged in the financial markets. He has a deep history innovating in socially and environmentally responsible investing and shareholder advocacy as founder of Progressive Asset Management back in the 80s, SRI Wealth Management, and also the Shareholder Activism Foundation As You Sow. Most recently, he's been deeply engaged with the Divest Invest Philanthropy Campaign in partnership with the Wallace Global Fund. Each of them will have about 10 minutes to introduce him or herself and their work with a focus on their philanthropic goals and their relationship to innovations in the, in the field. And I'm gonna be tasked with timekeeping for the group, so I might be a little heavy-handed. Then I'll lead a conversation with a few questions that will be emergent so that we'll talk amongst the whole panel. And then we'll invite you into the conversation as well. And Kristen, with that, I'll turn it over to you. So thank you so much for that. I'm going to have to get a copy of the Scaling My Impact, because I like it. I like it. So I'm Kristen, and I just want to... A little bit closer to the mic. A little closer. Okay. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Do I want... It's much better for... If I stand up? Oh, all right. All right. Okay. Here we go. Go to the podium. All right. Sorry. You play this game. I know. I always try to avoid the podium. Okay. So um, I would just like to start out with a quote from Martin Luther King, um, just to kind of ground us about where we are and where I feel I am in this movement. And um, so philanthropy is commendable, but it must not cause the philanthropist to overlook the circumstances of economic injustice, which make philanthropy necessary. So I grew up in a family, um, my dad started a business in our garage and I worked at that and it was in um, futures and commodities and this whole kind of financial beast. And so I did that because I was part of that family and I also was a bilingual school teacher as Jennifer said. So I um, was trying to bridge my two worlds and I feel like I'm finally there now. Um, when we sold that business together, we decided as a family to start this foundation and I really knew almost nothing about philanthropy. So it was um, one of those things where I could go to conferences and learn about. And there, at my first conference, I learned that there was, in addition to the 5%, that there was a 95% that was sitting often in um, things, and I'm sure Tom will talk about this, um, things that are causing the kinds of problems that we're trying to use our 5% and all of those efforts of donors um, to eradicate. So things like poverty and economic injustice and climate change. And I mean, the list goes on and on. 
that your investment portfolio is often causing. And so it's been really interesting for me to go through this journey and think about how am I going to, one, um, learn about the tools that I have in my toolbox and then really amplify those and use them and then share them as far as having philanthropy be the most effective way to get at some of the causes that we know are really, really important. And so my journey in this began in 2007 when I was put in charge of our family foundation. and. Um, interestingly enough, there were other things going on with other parts of the portfolio, and we needed to figure out some fixed income. And so I said, oh, well, I'll take the fixed income in the foundation. And that was a super awesome time just because, um, as we all know, it was a great time to be out of public equities. And so the fact that I had taken the entire portfolio out of the public markets and had started to do some awesome banking with some really, really great loan partners um, Shore Bank, what's now Beneficial Bank in California. We had seven community banks that we loved the financial literacy that they were doing, the small business loans, and um, sometimes banking to the underserved, sometimes women, um, immigrants, people of color that hadn't had a real, um, I guess, credit history and banking history. And so we were really fascinated and proud of the work they were doing. And so being in those seven banks, in addition to starting on some loans and some fixed income things by 2008, when foundations were down 28%, we were up too. So I share that because it's fun. It's a fun fact. Um, but also, I think it gave me a lot of reassurance for my instincts about staying on this path and that what I felt was the right thing to do really could be and that the market was actually rewarding me for that. So I kept going. I think had the markets gone up, you know, 28% and whatever, I might have gone down a different path. But I got rewarded really early. And so then from there I went on to doing different kinds of deals, really looking for solutions-oriented um, businesses, um, loans to make, um, entrepreneurs that were oftentimes the underserved women and people of color doing the businesses. And then I really liked learning about the way they were thinking about some of our ec economic injustices, really looking for places where my passion for social justice met environmental sustainability. And so where those two came together is kind of my sweet spot for doing deals and really thinking about playing upstream as far as we can, as far as root causes. So it's just been super, super fun. So. As much as I love using all of these tools, doing loan guarantees, working with, um, I'm thinking in particular the city of Oakland, also doing a charter school in Oakland where we were able to do a guarantee and then lower the mortgage rate um, by bringing in several different um, constituents. So super fun things. I noticed on that path that not all foundations were really ready to play in that way, were really had the team to do that kind of due diligence or the board that would allow um, smaller, um, oftentimes seen as more risky um, ventures with the corpus or the capital. And so I started to think, well, how can we get more people involved and how can we really change the way we're thinking about this in a more systematic way? And so for me, that met with my educator hat on meeting people where they're at. And everyone I was talking to was pretty committed to the public markets. And so that meant I had to go back in and that was really hard because I was really enjoying not being in the public markets. And then I thought, well, if I'm doing this, it really has to be with my values. And so after two years of searching, realized that there wasn't a product out there that really did fit my values in a way that 
was to using the activism as well as finding those solutions-oriented companies. And so, long story short, I ended up partnering with Amy Dominey, and we now have um, NIA Global Solutions, which is a public equities portfolio with 38 companies that are all actively working on the solutions we need for people or planet. And so that's been super fun, too. And it's also just really great to be able to engage with people everywhere. I'm hoping that we'll be able to bring it down so it's a retail product. And so I would love to see everyone has options in their 401k about super, super impactful um, investments. And so that's kind of my big thing now is how can we really break the big banks and make it more equitable and democratize the whole movement. And so that's kind of me in a nutshell right now. Thanks. I have a lot of tech, just so you know. <laughs> okay. Oh, oops. Okay. Hi, everybody. I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona, and um, I am really happy to be here. Thank you all for coming. I am so excited about this topic of leveraging donor activism because I work at Women Donors Network, and that is basically what we're all about. So it's an exciting opportunity for me to share a little bit more about us, what we do, and um, how we do it. So at WDN, we do philanthropy differently. We uh, are pretty unique in the world of philanthropy, and we're the largest network of progressive women individual donors. Our members work together to multiply their own energy, their own strategic savvy, and their money, their philanthropic dollars, to, toward their common purpose of a more just, fair, and sustainable world. And so just to give you a snapshot of who we are, we have 200 plus members in 37 states, coast to coast. Uh, we, uh, our members contribute uh, over $160 million annually to various progressive causes. We are um, in leadership on boards, uh, more hundreds of boards in the nonprofit sector and the public sector as well, and the private sector. And then within WDN, we organize around circles that focus on different issues, and we have 10 different donor circles working for systemic change. We are just a very well-resourced and well-connected group. And we have a joke at WDN that in philanthropy, it's not the size that matters. It's the strategy. Because when we look at all the issues that we care about that Jen mentioned, um, you know, climate change, economic justice, all of it, we're looking at huge industries that are fighting us on any kind of systemic, any kind of reform or change. And those industries essentially have unlimited pocketbooks. And so if we can't match them in terms of um, the, their dollars, what we can do is find the strategic levers that we can pull together, working together, and we can make systemic and transformational change that way. So one of the images that we conjure is like a, a tugboat pulling a steamship. So we may be small relative to the change we want to make, but if we can pull the right levers, that we can make big things move. So how we do that in WDN, first and foremost, we are a community. So we um, have women who have the, a shared value system and also a lot of shared experiences. 
we network them together and help them find connection, support, and collaboration. And that is very important. It's a very important part of the work, the community building, because it takes that sort of trust um, in the group to then be able to move forward on some of the big projects that we do together. In the context of our community, we offer uh, educational programs, so, and this is where we try to help donors become stronger leaders um, in their own right, as well as we help them leverage all of their assets. So it's not just your what you give out of your um, philanthropic budget, but also your investments. Um, we have a, a really strong shareholder activism program, as well as your, you know, the access that women donors have to policymakers and other influential people, um, and the connections and really broad relationships that our donors have across the whole progressive movement. We also, um, as part of this, offer different tools and frameworks that are sort of on the cutting edge. One of the ones that is really important to us is uh, a lens, a, an intersectional lens of race, class, and gender. So that even though we are all women, we don't come with just a, ra with just a gender lens, but we uh, look at everything across race, class, and gender. So then we also give collectively and take collective action. And we do that in a number of different ways. We can respond to things when they happen um, because we're nimble and unlike a foundation, um, people can just come together and raise money really quickly. We did that around the Invisible War, which helped elevate this uh, issue of rape in the military. One of our members just saw the film at Sundance and wrote out to the group and said, we need to do something about this and um, we need to help get this out there. So we funded... Um, the basically the outreach campaign and we became executive producers and that really made a difference for that work. The other way we give is um, kind of like er early stage, um, innovative and catalytic um, type of investments. An example here is the group Ultraviolet, which um, Jen mentioned. They were just had an idea and a concept paper, and they came to WDN. They couldn't get money from anywhere else. They weren't able to get into the foundation world at that point. We gave them their first grant, and um, they are now, two and a half years later, they're a $6 million organization. They have over 600,000 members. Sorry. Um, and so that's one of the ways that we work as well, kind of being that catalytic force. And then finally, we look for places where with our investments we can really like put a stake and make long-lasting social change. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this Reflective Democracy Campaign, which is a new initiative at WDN and uh, the first of its kind, really, that we started a couple of years ago by asking a really basic question, which is what's wrong with this picture? Um, why aren't women and people of color in leadership in more equal um, balance to their numbers in the population? And we found um, when we started looking at this right away that uh, there was some research that showed if we continued on the same path in terms of what we're doing right now, it would take 500 years to get to some kind of equal representation. And so we thought that we could do better than that. Um, we wanted to look uh, at a different approach. And so when we started doing this work, we looked at, um, we interviewed basically all of these different people on the, um, in, on the ground. So not only other funders, but also other um, organizers, people at the state level, people at the national level. And we found a couple of aha um, findings, essentially. One was that a lot of the effort is driven around um, recruitment and training um, and funding of specific candidates, which is super important. But that 
those candidates are going up against a system that has a lot of barriers toward women and people of color actually being in leadership. And there wasn't a lot of effort that we saw going into actually tackling those barriers. And so that was one reason why we thought that we needed to take this on in a different way. The other piece was that the whole field is very fractured. It's, um, you know, you have people working for more women and people working for more African-American people in office and for more Hispanic and Latino people in office. And that's just how it's kind of been structured. But the result is that everything was very fractured and it felt like we were missing an opportunity to have a bigger coalition if we actually had a, a, a different lens. And so the lens of reflective democracy is that just the simple idea that our leaders should reflect the people that they serve and that should be a value that we have. So the other way that we kind of leverage our donor activism is by getting them really involved in the creation of these kinds of initiatives. This is a committee of about 10 people that are donors themselves who came to the table um, over in two years of work to kind of develop this initiative and then bring it to our whole membership. And um, this is just one of our meetings where we are actually moving it forward. We decided to move this project forward and they're voting with their spirit fingers that they wanted, yes. Um, and so I just share that because it's an important kind of part of our process as a, a, mem a donor membership organization. So this is the campaign that we launched um, as the result of all this work called Who Leads Us? We launched it in uh, Washington, D.C. actually just a couple weeks ago. And um, what it is is it, we, we did this research project and we funded other people to do this research that for the first time ever tracked the race and gender of all elected officials from the county level up to the president. And so I want to show this quick video to um, show you what we found. Have you ever wondered, what does America actually look like? Let's zoom out from the people we see in the media and the people we talk to every day and look at the big picture. About 314 million of us live in the United States. 51% of us are women and 49% of us are men. 63% of us are white. 37% of us are people of color. Our country is changing fast, but are the people who represent us from city council to Congress, keeping up with that change. Do we live in a reflective democracy? We did some research, and here's what we found. We studied 42,000 elected officials who represent us, from the county level all the way up to Congress. If they reflected America's population, our elected officials should look like this. But it actually looks like this. 71% of elected officials are men, 90% are white, and 65% are white men. That means men have three times as much power as women, and white Americans also have three times as much power as people of color, and white men have eight times as much power as women of color. When 31% of the population controls 65% of elected offices, is it a surprise that most Americans feel our democracy is broken? To learn more about the data we've collected, visit us at Who Leads Us and share the data with your friends. Then tell us at Who Leads Us how you think we can become a more reflective democracy. So, um, sorry. 
<laughs> okay. So what we wanted to do with that was essentially, um, you know, we didn't want to duplicate efforts. We're not creating a new organization. What we, what we felt was important as funders was to create a, a infrastructure, basically, and some co a common resource and common tools that will help elevate this issue in the public conversation, can catalyze this conversation in a new way. And we're already finding that a lot of the groups doing work in social change and in the area of electing more women and people of color to office are super excited about this data. And next week, we're going to be releasing a state-by-state index, basically a new a new way to measure whether your state is um, basically measuring up in a reflect for a reflective democracy. And then um, there's going to be something called the National Representation Index. So it's essentially a new way of measuring the, the health of our democracy. And so we're really excited about that. And what we want to do in the next, um, you know, two years at least, is leverage the success of the research into long-term change of the system. So we're going to be working with partners over the next couple of years to actually tackle some of the barriers that we have identified um, in in states and at the local level. And then we will be funding different campaigns in those areas that will come from the ground and that will hopefully, because we now can measure, um, we'll be able to see the progress and success over time. So we also hope that by sharing our process with others, like all of you, um, that this idea of collective impact and using um, all of our resources and, and leveraging for change will take hold and can be useful to other issues as well. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Hi, my name's Lauren Embry, and yes, I am the philanthropic vision for the Embry Family Foundation in Dallas, Texas. And boy, we are having some fun in Dallas, I can tell you, and in Texas. But first, what I want to do is back up just a little bit and kind of tell you a little bit of history of how we got to where we are and what we're working on right now. So our foundation's pretty young. So it was founded in 2004 by my father, who put half of the money that he earned in his lifetime into a foundation. So half of it went into a trust fund, and half of it went into the foundation. And he, really, he died pretty soon after that. So in, the, in the, the corpus, there was not much money. And we were really just kind of learning and feeling our way. No one had much experience about what this was all about, what philanthropy was. It was definitely a learning experience. He died about a year into the foundation, and then money started flowing into the corpus. He left it open. He left it open for us to decide what we wanted to do with it. It's um, my sister and I and my son and a couple of other members that are very close to the family is who's on our board. So we looked at it as an exploration and a discovery. And as I started going out learning about what might be possible and educating myself, because I had no nonprofit experience, and I was already late into my 40s at that time, mid-40s, um, I found out that, yeah, you need to get strategic about this. And if you want to do this right, it requires a lot of responsibility and a lot of care. So as we moved forward, I started learning, I started exploring. I went around, I was meeting people, I was learning about the work that they were doing, I was finding about new initiatives, um, new explorations into areas that were up and coming, the difference between systemic change and just band-aiding 
for the for the issues that were out there. And this led us to probably around 2008, 2009, when the economic downturn hit. So we're, as I said, we were newer, so we weren't really affected by that. We probably lost, I think, maybe 11% at that time. But I felt with the economic downturn, and all I was hearing about was how everybody was pulling back, how you know everybody, there wasn't enough money to go around at that point in time because the institutions were worried about their spending. They were worried about their corpus and the fiduciary responsibility, their boards, et cetera. Well, we felt very lucky because we didn't have to live in that realm. Um, we were smaller as far as um, the board members and the family and the staff that we were able to make our own decisions as to where we might want to go with our amount of giving. And I felt like there was real strong momentum and energy happening at that point in time. I felt like there was a real, real opportunity for change in the world. And what we decided to do was we decided to go the opposite direction. We decided to spend a lot at a time when people weren't spending anything. Because I thought, this is the time when people need the care more. more. I mean, they need the money. The dollars need to be out there, and people are pulling back. I just... I couldn't understand that. I couldn't fathom that when that was the work. I sound a little judgmental right now, I know. But, you know, in the work that we're in to help and to take care of people and to make change in our world, just pulling back didn't make sense to me. So we um, started an initiative called Mission Without Borders. And instead of looking at percentage of giving, where we'd always been giving seven and a half up to that point, we looked at a bulk sum of dollars that we were going to give away. And we decided within a five-year period, we'd give $15 million away. Um, and for us, that ended up some years being 21%, 23%. Um, we were never below 15% as far as our giving was during those years. Um, we wanted to be as strategic as possible, and we had six focus areas in our Mission Without Borders initiative. And that was human rights, education, and awareness women and girls leadership, women in the media, art for social change, racial and gender equity, and art for social change. And I know that's kind of an interesting makeup, and it's broad, and it is a lot. And that's one of the challenges that we've had, but one of the reasons why we've had the most fun is we've gone out in those different categories, and we really looked for the organizations, the individuals, the leadership that we felt was really exciting, new, different, happening, and could really bring forth some systemic change, and that's who we got involved with. We really wanted to see how well we could also connect those different focus areas throughout the initiative. So networking was a big part of it. Um, leadership uh, on my part was a lot of it. Um, how we could broaden the scope and broaden the knowledge and the awareness, because awareness is really the main tenet of our foundation. Our mission is to cultivate human rights awareness and to advance initiatives that challenge and embolden people to walk better in the world. Um, and so I feel that if people aren't aware, they can't really make change. So it's a level down from education. So sometimes I found, at least in my community, if you go out and you just inform people through film, through speakers, through giving that you're doing, all the many different ways that you can do so, you plant the seed. And people tend to have and can have and many have had an aha moment. And then they kind of get it. Because otherwise, they're kind of living in sometimes in their own worlds. And they don't really see outside of those boxes at times. So you have to sometimes, I felt, we've learned, bring it to them. 
So we learned a lot, and we learned that our sweet spot through that initiative was, was what I said, the new, innovative, cutting edge. And then we also found that seed funding was also something that we were doing a lot of without really looking at it. We, we've also engaged and had an evaluation process throughout this whole initiative, which ends at the, begin to, at the end of this year, and then we'll start a new one. And then we have plans of putting a report together, um, a synopsis of what we've learned, our challenges, successes that we can provide to the philanthropic and outside that community as well. Um, so which leads me to what we're doing now, which is really the exciting part. The Mission Without Borders initiative was national. And I really have to say it was just a strategic move on my part because I really just wanted to not be working in Dallas all the time and in the community. <laughs> so, so far our board, it was really just a strategic way to get national, you know, to learn more, to get the, to get the broaden the reach. And um, it was very successful. I would say that I, we, we consider it very, very successful. One of the focus areas, though, that never really anything manifested in was racial and gender equity, in particular race. Um, the two things that I care about most from my upbringing are gender and racial equity. And um, for stories that I could tell you that I'll share, you know, if you want to come up afterwards, I'd be happy to share that. But um, what we had, we had engaged, I'd been... Um, with an organization, I'd been learning a lot with an organization called the Applied Research Center, which is now Race Forward. And I actually went with WDN, I'm a member of WDN, went to a white privilege workshop uh, that they were putting on. And I was really just floored um, by what I learned and what, as a white person, um, I, I really didn't know, the privilege that I walked in without even realizing that I walked in. In it. I, I grew up, as I said, in Dallas, and I did grow up with a black lady in our house from three months on who took care of everything and took great care of us. And she had um, her husband, we called him Papa. She called me Miss Embry. So it's all that whole, um, you know, setting that you hear about. And my aha moment around that was when I was in my 20s, um, you know, we'd always have parties in the house, and yes, Reggie would go in the back door, and she had her white uniform for the day, and if we had guests at night, she'd change into her black uniform at night, and I enjoyed hanging out in the kitchen. I thought it was much more fun than, you know, what was happening out in the big room, um, but I had an experience one time where I thought I was being just the wonderful, wonderful white person, and um, Reggie had a Cadillac, and my dad would always give the, the, the business Cadillacs. He would pass on the older ones to Reggie, and she just loved those cars, and she wouldn't let Papa drive them for anything. And so we were leaving. I was leaving with them at the end one evening. And as I said, I thought I was being the great white person. And I was like, Papa, sit in the front seat. Reggie always drove. No, Miss Embry, no, Miss Embry, you sit in the front seat. I'm like, no, no, sit in the, sit in the front seat. So that went on for a little while. And I ended up in the front seat. And he ended up in the back. And I thought, well, I'm trying to be really great about all of this. Well, I did not have that. I'm in my 20s. So in my 40s, I go to this white privilege workshop with the Applied Research Center, which is now Race Forward, and I told the story to one of the facilitators. And she said, well, of course, Lauren, because if he'd been caught in the front seat, he would have been lynched in his day. And so I was like, oh, my God. Like, how could I never have realized that? Like, how could in all of my time in the place that I grew up never have figured that out? So because of that, the issue of race relations and racial equity became really, really important to me. And it didn't manifest until the foundation um, came about, tried to be conscious, but it didn't manifest, uh, manifest until the foundation. 
was formed. So uh, we presented, during the Mission Without Borders initiative, we were presented um, something, a program that we wanted to do uh, around uh, racial equity that was declined. It was like we had two, throughout our five years and all the money we spent, there were two things that were declined by the board, and this was one of them. And I thought, well, they just don't get it yet. You know, it's just a little out of the box, and they just don't really understand what's happening. And Reen Kusin, for those of you who know her in the room, she's fabulous. She's the leader, ED, of uh, Race Forward. I said, you know what, Rinku, something's better down the road. You know, this is okay. We were both like, something's better coming up. And that was, that was truthful. That was right. Because now we've got an initiative going on in Dallas called Dallas Faces Race. So two years ago... In 2012, uh, we took all of our grantees from our Mission Without Borders initiative to a pre-conference at the Facing Race Conference in Baltimore 2012. And we had an amazing time, uh, a lot of collaboration, a lot of networking. And at that point, we also brought some constituents from Dallas, including a staffer from the mayor's office came, because we were going to begin, shall I say, lobbying Rinku to bring the Facing Race Conference to Dallas. It had never been in the South before. It had always been in the expected places, the East, the West Coast, Chicago, places like that. And we felt like there was real energy, and people really, really wanted it to happen. So, um, long story short, uh, Rinku came to Dallas, and we really did our due diligence as far as bringing people in. We brought people in, um, mostly in the nonprofit space, because that's the space we know. But we did bring in faith leaders. We brought in um, uh, educators, philanthropists, arts artists from many different realms of our community to see if there would be buy-in for this. Rinku would speak. We would tell our story. And there was big-time buy-in. People were really so excited about um, bringing this, having this happen. And there was great support in the community. There really weren't any dissenters at all whatsoever. So as time moves forward, um, Rinku got approval from her board and her discussions and decided, yes, to bring the uh, Facing Race Conference to Dallas. So in that time period, um, it's been about, you know, going on two years years for, you know, a year plus, a few months, quite a few months, we've had our initiative intact and going to where we have been engaging the nonprofit community and building up partner organizations through our initiative, Dallas Faces Race, in um, working in partnership with another big family foundation in Dallas called the Boone Family Foundation. So not only have we been connecting with other philanthropists to do the work, we've also been reaching out to the nonprofit community and building up that, provided we've been providing trainings, we've uh, provided events, conferences, and the list goes on as to what we've been trying to bring in to try to understand this work, to open the door for this work, and to elevate the work. And have the conversations, basically, that we really just need to have in the community because of just the, the trauma around it, just um, all that exists, all the baggage that exists around this topic. Um, and I've learned a lot, a lot, um, as far as, um, you know, my behavior, um, how other people feel, um, how best to approach this issue in many different ways. So um, the Facing Race Conference will be in Dallas this November. It's coming right up. And uh, as I said, it's the first time in the South. And when we were talking about the, you know, how many people would be coming to the conference, 
Riku said, well, we're expecting about a thousand. And I said, no, mm -mm, you're going to get a lot more than that. Sure enough, they're going to have to cap. They've already reached a thousand, uh, less over a month out, and they're going to have to cap the registrations because so many people are registering for the conference. So it was really fun to say, I told you so. <laughs> but, you know, when people, when you go into an area, there's so much about Texas. There was something about Texas, you know, in the plenary this morning. You know, it's, it's, it's happening. It really is happening there. And what I have always felt about where I'm from, because believe me, I've had a love-hate relationship with it, is if we make a difference there, which we are and we are going to do, the ripple effects will be huge. And they're going to be huge because it's the unexpected spot. And it's happening. Um, we, we started a human rights education program in uh, Dallas as well that's just, you know, its trajectory has been, been huge, but I diverge digress. Um, but anyway, so my time's probably about up or over time now. So I hope I wasn't rambling a bit. Um, when I get talking, my brain starts moving and I start going many different directions. But that's what we're working on right now. And the way we've looked at that has been a process. It's been development. We've gone in with a basic outline for what we want to achieve, but we also am leaving the door open for the flexibility, for the organic, to see what might happen. So I can't tell you what's going to happen exactly afterwards, after the conference. But we know we will be continuing on, but we've just got to wait and see how this all comes together. We just did hire a staffer, though, so we now have a full-time staff doing the Dallas Faces Race initiative, and so that's really exciting. But um, yeah, I guess I should stop here now. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So I guess I'm the uh, token white guy. <laughs> But before we get started, I want to say something I didn't say yesterday, which is happy birthday, happy 25th birthday to Bioneers, right? And thank you so much for having us here. And Kenny, I know you're in the back of the room, and I don't need us here, but thank you for starting Bioneers because it's a place where I think it teaches us that if we live instead by the laws of man, but live more by the laws of nature, that actually the solutions are here before our very eyes. So whether you're 10 or 15 years ahead, or you're taking us back a thousand years to actually relearn what we've forgot, it's just a really great place for new ideas. It's one of the most invigorating conferences that I've come to for over 20 years, and it was a privilege to be on the board. Thank you, Kenny, for, for this. It's really special. <laughs> So before we get started, I want to find how many people here signed up for Divest Invest, just to get an idea who's excellent, excellent, okay, good work, good work. Um, that's fantastic. How many people here think you have to give up return for becoming carbon free? Okay, so we will, just a few, okay. How many people here think you have to give up return? Okay, so everyone here thinks you don't need to give up return, that's great, we won't focus on those slides because we need to shorten this speech a little bit. But we're, how many people here understand what the carbon budget's about? Should we go into that quickly as to what the issue is? Okay, do a quick cover. You're, you're good to go. Okay, we'll, we'll go quickly through that. How to go carbon-free, focus on your portfolio. We may do some more of that at the end. So quickly, though, what's the issue about? 2,800 gigatons of carbon dioxide are reflected on the balance sheets of the fossil fuel companies today. They can only burn 900 gigatons of that carbon dioxide before they raise the temperature to the two degrees Celsius level that every nation 
in the world agreed to in Copenhagen that we cannot raise the temperature of the planet above. That includes China, India, and the United States, and they don't agree to much, but they did agree to that. So you have to ask yourself a question then, is why are these companies spending $700 billion a year looking for new, in capital expenditures, most of it looking for new reserves, when they can only burn about a third of that that's reflected on their balance sheets today? How long will it take for them to burn that 900 gigatons of carbon dioxide? Essentially, it's about 20 years, according to Price Waterhouse. I mean, you could go with Jim Hansen, who thinks it's more like 11, 12, or 13 years, or you could go to the climate deniers who thinks it'll never happen. But Price Waterhouse says about 20 years before we blow through our carbon budget. So it's going to happen in our lifetimes. Let's discuss the risks. Risk to taxpayers. In 2012, in climate disasters, we spent $139 billion cleaning up. So that deals with fires, droughts, tornadoes, floods, and hurricanes. The insurance companies are pretty smart about it. They're, they only basically paid for $33 billion of that because they've backed out of a lot of the areas like you know, insuring flood zone properties. But you know who didn't back out of that deal? Look around the room. It's us, the U.S. taxpayer. We're the ones who picked up the tab on $96 billion of those costs. That's more than we spent on transportation and education, second only to defense. So if you're running a company in the company's USA, this is excess capital is being taken out of our balance sheets unexpectedly on an annual basis beyond the budget. It's not like we budget for this. Bloomberg says if we continue along this path, they've done some extra ex extrapolations. They say we could be spending between 200 to 250 billion dollars a year in 10 years dealing with carbon disasters. That's more money we spent on defense under Clinton. Just to give you perspective. Now, what's the risk to the potential risk to the financial markets? Different bubbles: dot-com bubble, five trillion; home equity bubble, which you just went through, about seven billion dollars. The circle's the top, the little circle's how much it collapsed to. The current estimate is around $20 trillion plus or minus depending upon where oil is priced. So from a size perspective, it's something that from a financial risk perspective, we need to be aware of. And if you're a shareholder, you definitely need to be thinking about that. Why? Because the capital expenditures of the oil companies, which are in red, these are 11 of the largest oil companies, is actually increasing dramatically. So they're looking for more and more reserves. And it's really, really expensive to find these reserves. Why? Because they're in places like the Arctic. They're in places off the Brazilian shelf. It's very expensive to get this oil. But if you're an owner of these companies, so this is a risk to the, to the fossil fuel owners, your production revenue is actually dropping, even though the capital expenditures are increasing. Why is that a problem? Because now all of a sudden your cash, all this cash that's on the balance sheets of these companies is being used, but not in the most productive way because you're not getting any revenue associated increase on it. So you need to ask the management teams of these companies, why not just increase your dividend and pay money back, turn into a yield co, you know, get out what you have to the two degrees Celsius level and pay us a yield. Why not do that? Why not buy some of your shares back? Or better yet, why not become energy companies and actually diversify into another energy source? Right? I mean, that's a novel idea. So if you're, so if you're a shareholder, this is, this is kind of the concern you need to be considering. Now, here are the return issues that we're not going to deal with. This is a carbon-free benchmark that goes back to 1997. So if anybody says you have to give up return for doing it, you can clearly see the lines are the same. You do not. The carbon-free line happens to be slightly higher. But since everyone here agrees with that, we're not going to cover these. Same results here. 
So let's go to the invest side. Defining what the clean tech market is. We need to put a trillion dollars a year into renewable energy infrastructure build out. Now that's just not people go, well, we can't put money into just solar and wind, a trillion dollars. No, 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 we're talking across the entire infrastructure of the economy. What does that mean? Buildings, lighting, HVAC systems, insulation. So it's now affecting everything. Waste reduction, recycling, waste energy, sustainable packaging, agriculture, smart irrigation, organic, waste food. So it's affecting not just one part of the, the, in the economy, but all parts of it. Water, talk about California. We're in major droughts right now. It's becoming a significant problem. Wastewater treatment infrastructure, pumping technology, energy, energy storage, optimization, geothermal wind. There's your geothermal wind. Transportation, we need to convert it from a petrochemical molecule to an electron. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of jobs that can be created doing this. And what's happening when we're investing in clean technology? This is another issue for investors they need to be concerned about if you're owning carbon, if you're owning carbon. Look what's happening to solar power panels over the last five years. They've dropped 70%. And as that's happened, adoption has gone up. In fact, half of all the new power going into place right now is renewable energy. It's becoming more and more economical. It's a grid parity in 18 states right now. It'll be a grid parity across the entire United States by the end of 2016. And that's all externalities priced in. We're not talking about coal where, you know, they say, oh, we're six cents a kilowatt hour. Oh, really? Well, what about Montauk removal? What about all the coal fly ash problems that we're having with the Dan River in North Carolina? What about that? Those costs, if you actually do the numbers, as you showed, it's the numbers, it's actually 24 cents a kilowatt hour if you take all the externalities. So solar's becoming cheaper, but it's not just solar. It's wind. It's LED lighting. Look at the drops in costs of having, this is just over a period of five or six years. And then this is the mother load. This is the holy grail right here. Battery storage. Why is battery storage the holy grail? Because once you can store power, we lose right now, we waste 50% of every electron we create through burning fossil fuels. Just flies off in the ether if we don't use it. If we can store those electrons, I mean, what, what industry says, I'm going to waste 50% of everything I produce? I mean, think about that. If you started a business doing that, you'd look at someone and say, well, you're, you're crazy. You know, you're really inefficient. You're very wasteful, and you're not going to survive economically. If we can store that, we can deal with the intermittency of wind and solar, and the idea of nat gas as a transition fuel d diminishes and goes away. And we can use oil for the things that we can use it for. It's not going to go away. We can use it for lubricants and some of the things that it actually can be used for. But we don't need to necessarily burn it. And battery storage allows that to happen. We're probably nine to 10 years away from when you have commercializations of batteries to the point where they can be used for this. In fact, you have to ask yourself, what is Elon Musk really doing in Nevada? Is he a car company or is he a battery company? Here's some financial results for those people who decide to stay in coal. The black line is coal, so it's been a hell of a return. Great if you're shorting it, not long, great if you're going long. The, the red line is nat gas, and then you got the light blue and the blue lines are wind and solar. So over the, since, the, since, the, since 2012, it's been better for wind and solar. Previously, wind and solar did very, very poorly. But you're seeing coming out of the, the crash, if you will, of 2008 and the financial debacle, you're seeing a lot of disruptive technologies come out. Innovators that are unlocking huge markets. Nest, which is the founder of the iPod, the, the, the engineer that developed the iPod created Nest. Tesla, obviously, Elon Musk. 
Solar City, the largest solar stall and power in the United States. So there's lots of opportunities because this creates a lot of jobs. There's essentially about 160,000 jobs in the solar industry alone in, every 50, in all 50 states in the United States today. And it's growing very, very quickly. It's one of the fastest growing parts of the market because it's going to take a long time to convert our economy. It's going to create a lot of very well-paying jobs for predominantly union jobs, too, because the utilities employ unions. So this is not just, you know, the high-collar, you know, tech jobs. This is jobs that's actually for working people that can go out and put, you know, put panels on roofs. We need to put it all over the country. So let's look at what's happening from the standpoint of global attitudes. They're shifting. Companies must produce and consume more efficiently and more competitively. If you're, if you're a company that understands you can be more efficient using your energy, are you going to outperform your competitor that doesn't? Absolutely. If you're more sustainable, more efficient, more productive, with better governance, you are going to outperform your competitors. Because you have more women and people of color on the board, so you have more diversity to understand how to sell into the different markets you're going into. Right? You're more efficient, so you're having more go to the bottom line. You treat your employees as assets rather than costs, so you're not exploiting workers or the environment, and you actually have more productivity, and you have better earnings as a result. So that's what's going through. Millennials are demanding it. They're demanding that we need to deal with climate change. Our generation basically is the first generation to understand the risk of carbon change, carb of carbon on burning carbon in the planet. That's what Jay Isley said, who's the Democratic governor from Washington State. And it, we're the last generation that's going to be able to do anything about it. So our generation's legacy is going to be defined by how we deal with this issue. Because it's the next generation that's going to be inheriting the problems associated with that. So look at the carbon in your portfolio. If you're looking, if you want to say, okay, how do I decarbonize my portfolio? What do I own? Where do I own? How much do I own it? As you saw, is working on something right now to help design what that is and figure out what mutual funds are out there. What's my risk tolerance? Quick thing on how much you own. When we asked South African, to, to, for the big pension funds to divest from South Africa, that represented 40% of the S&P 500. We asked them to remove 40% of the S&P 500 and sell the, and divest to get out of South Africa. The fossil fuel companies represent about 8% of the index, not 40%, okay? And in many situations, what you'll find is that you really only own 3 or 4%. CalPERS, CalSTRS may own more like 7 or 8 But if you're an active manager, you're going to own far less. So this is a real easy thing to do because it's not going to have that much effect on the portfolio overall. So define the parameters. Determine what your risk tolerance is. Look at clean tech. Broaden the clean tech from the standpoint of a definition to include all the industries in place. Position the percentage of the portfolio that should be allocated, and then do full ESG. So ESG integration is environment, social, and governance factors. Integrate them across the entire portfolio, all the asset classes, stocks, bonds, private equity, whatever else you're doing. And I close with Desmond Tutu, who you probably know actually did a video that came out with the Divest Invest movement in New York with the climate movement. He called for, he's now embracing it, the idea of divest and invest. He said, we need to hold the perpetrators accountable with climate liability. We need to divest from fossil fuels. We need to, we need to uh, have governments and politicians stop taking money from the fossil fuel companies so that we can actually put the regulations in place that can get a price on carbon. 
So here he says, stewards of creation are not an empty title. It requires us to act with all the urgency that this dire situation demands. In addition, at the Climate Works, which was a relatively underfunded story, there was $24 trillion of assets from around the world, including BlackRock, which is the largest asset manager in the world, $7.1 trillion, CalPERS, CalSTRS, major financial institutions from literally Europe, Asia, calling for two things, a price on carbon, okay, and getting rid of the three quarters of a trillion dollars in oil subsidies that are given annually worldwide. Okay, so we can play a role here together to help transition our economy. It takes everyone to do it. Thank you very much. Okay, well, I think, um, Tom, you gave me a really good segue into my next <laughs> question, um, which is to go back to the title of the panel, right? to go back to this growing tendency for people to talk about donor activists. And I want to dig in a little bit on what, what that means. How do you relate to that term? How do you understand it? Is it about moving financial resources, engaging on issues? Does it have a relationship to things you do beyond money? Um, and what are the challenges of being both a donor and an activist? Are there are there issues, are there obstacles to sort of trying to figure out where then your place is in the work? I'll take that one. So this is Kristen. <laughs> and there's always challenges, right? The, this, we are in a time of, oh, is it better? No, okay. Um, so I think we're in a time of challenges and yet I think everyone in this room knows we're here to rise up to those challenges. And so, I was an activist before I was a donor, so it was easy for me to just move into that role because I just got a lot more tools. And it doesn't mean I don't use my same tools of being an activist. And I think what we also know from Bioneers and from everything we learn here is that the change starts from within. And so being the best people that we can be and leading by example is one of our best ways to be active in this space. Um, but it also means figuring out how to have difficult conversations. And I think as people on this uh, panel, I'll see if it resonates, is that we all have our networks and you know, uniting those networks, leveraging those networks, making sure that all of our people get a chance to have that conversation. So I personally at NIA do a lot of convenings um, of my focus is Oakland um, women and underserved populations, particularly in Oakland. And so, and then when I bring my different people together, I try to have that in a nice convening space where people can have the conversations that we need to have to kind of grow our movement. Um, and then it doesn't hurt to have some money to put behind all of these things. So organizing, um, seeding early, early groups. Like Jen talked about, we got to do ultraviolet um, from a very first conversation and then help them grow at a time where coming in early before other people can, that's a real form of activism, is being there when other people aren't there and then staying with something for the long run. So I could go on and on, but I feel like we really get to do that and really leverage both our actions um, as well as our grants and our money. And again, you know, my big passion is doing our investments and really using our activism with that. Okay, sure. 
I'll just add that that's exactly right. Um, but I'll just add, I also think it means pushing the boundaries, which you have heard in these different ways, like Lauren taking on this issue of race, which is not something that Dallas, you know, you would think of like <laughs> they would be the ones to really take it on. Um, pushing on the investor side, pushing the boundaries of what people are doing. And, and from our perspective, that also includes um, this early stage work that Krista mentioned, but also like being able to step in and do things together so that you're, you are actually leveraging your resources and making so much more impact than you would just by yourself as a lone sort of philanthropist. I also think it's very important that you leverage your entire portfolio. It's not just what you grant to, but it's leveraging the entire 95% in a way to bring about the change and accelerate that pace of change. So, and you can do that through, you know, obviously how you invest, the full HG integration, shareholder engagement, also, you know, PRIs and MRIs that complement, you know, the, uh, the donors that you're giving money to. So you can really leverage and accelerate the pace of change by using all of the money and not just what you're granting. And my addition to that is just using your voice. I mean, the willingness to get up and to speak out and to be able to say really what you're for and why you do it and not be afraid to do so because someone might not like it or some of the business leaders or such, because, you know, we're a bit huge business community, might not think that's good. So you have to be fearless in that regard, in my respect, to, to be willing to walk forward in the values that you believe in. And yes, definitely leveraging, networking, aligning with your values, your investment, your corpus, along with your work, your personal life. I mean, I think that, I think the challenge for me has been not aligning all of that. The challenge for me has been that I, um, by nature, love being involved in many different things and love all of this amazing, fabulous work that's happening. So the note that I would put out there, and it's really more note to self than anything else, is that sometimes you do have to say no. You know, like, what really do you want to get involved in and whatnot? I don't necessarily think you need to be laser focused, um, because we've been very successful by, you know, having our um, strands out there and our threads out there in many different ways, but definitely um, knowing what to say no to, I think, is really, really important. So has this part of your work or where you've gotten to now at this point in your work changed your perspective at all on how change actually happens in the world? Have, do you think differently about where to intervene? There were some comments about um, being more systemic or looking for leverage points or investing upstream. Do you think differently about halt the, where you intervene in terms of halting problems or advancing solutions or whether nonprofits or markets have the space? How do you... Um, think about where those points are, where your activism can make a difference. I'll take it. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, this is Kristen. And so I think as um, people that are operating with philanthropic dollars, it's really important to, I guess, just as you say, really th consider what your different buckets are and whether this is best reached with C4 money because sometimes a political donation is really going to get you where you want and then layering capital so that you can think about well, what can a nonprofit with C3 money do and what might a loan to a nonprofit do as opposed to a grant. So thinking about investment dollars, nonprofit dollars, coming in with C4 dollars, um, particularly some of the issues that um, Jen is talking about with WDN using like supporting groups like 
um, emerge that supports women to get involved in pro progressive politics, that is money really well spent if, for lots of different outcomes. So, um, but that's often C4 money. And so there's sometimes places where a political donation um, can take you a certain um, place as long as you're really using all of your investment dollars. And what I love to say about investment dollars is that that really can mean where you're um, using your credit card, you know, what credit card you're using, what local bank you're using, hopefully it's a local bank. Um, and, um, you know, and it might be using RSF, which is a minimum of $1,000. So, you know, all of us can make changes that really, really, really will both align with our values and advance the world that we want to see and the causes that we want. So thinking also, you know, just, I mean, it can come down to whether you're going to take the bus or walk or whether you're going to drive that car again and look for parking and get stressed out about that. You know, so all of the little decisions, I think, are leverage points that we can be thinking about. Um, one of the things I think that we learned just in this example of the reflective democracy work was, um, you know, we started out doing research and trying a bunch of different things. And one of the things we tried was um, investing in a particular issue where we thought that we could elevate a lens of women's leadership and leadership of people of color through an issue lens, and that was um, gun violence prevention. So after the Sandy Hook shootings, our members really mobilized around, like, OK, let's go to DC. Let's let's raise this gender lens. We convened 150 organizations and, and um, elected leaders and really tried to make a difference. And part of what we learned in terms of like where you put the investment was that because the whole political system is so broken, it was almost like when we went inside and met with people and talked with all the people making the decisions, all, most of whom were white men, um, who did, didn't really hear the voices that were coming out and the, the, the voices of women leaders and people of color leaders, they just weren't at the table making the decisions. And so that was the strategic leverage point where we saw our money is going to be better spent actually at that point of changing the whole system and getting a new group of leaders at the table than trying to kind of push from the outside. So I'll just add. Well, the one thing that I've learned through this initiative we've been involved in is listening. Um, uh, listening to others, learning what it's like to walk in another's shoes, really um, understanding what my gut is trying to say to me, and um, really connecting the head with the heart. Uh, to make my decisions and not think that it all has to be about, you know, quantified. That the, you know, when the, the, I think that that's not everything. I think I love the qualitative. Actually, when we do our grant making, we're really looking at what we're wanting to do. I mean, the qualitative is really, really important. And sometimes I don't even look at the quantitative. We don't, to be quite honest. If it feels right and uh, good leadership and looks like has great opportunity to push something forth, you know, we're, we're, we're all in. Um, so I think letting some of those boundaries down, I would say, to help bring the change and not be constricted by some of the things that we've always told are the important ways to make decisions and the only ways to make decisions and thinking outside that box. Okay, I have a heap of questions, but I'm going to guess that you all also do. So if you have a question and you want to start making your way to the microphone, that would be terrific, and I will get you into the conversation. Um, they are recording, so it is important to be at the microphone. While that happens, while you guys get organized, um, one of the charges that philanthropy often faces is that it's ahistorical, that people come into philanthropy and 
they start to figure out how they're gonna do it and they're ready to go and they don't look at what has passed before and what's been tried and what models have worked or not. Are there any historical innovations or people that you really have, have really inspired you um, in learning about how this work has been done in the past that have guided the kinds of innovations that you've tried um, or your institutions have tried now? I think one thing that's very important for philanthropy is they start giving more money that's used for general uh, general operating money as opposed to specifically for, for like in program area. I mean, you know, in the, in, the, in the capitalistic system, I don't go to Genentech and say, you know, I only want to fund AZT, you know, because they say, see you later, you're out of here, you're going to buy the management team of the whole company or you're not buying it at all. And I think philanthropy needs to get out of this bucket of, you know, constantly making the, the nonprofit groups say, okay, we're going to allocate our general operating across all these different programs, and we're only going to fund this program, we're not going to fund the rest of your work. I think that's got to change, I think. And they should do multi-year grants, too, because they need to be doing more consistent grants, because you're making the activists spend more money to raise the money than they're actually getting. So, or at least a, a disproportional amount of time being used for that. So, that'd be my two comments. Anyone else um, want to jump in? Well, I'll just sh uh, share quickly. Um, one of the things that we're trying to do also at WDN, another innovation, is around kind of breaking down the barrier between grantee and especially individual donors because the foundation world, um, people doing the work feel like the foundation world can be fickle and, um, you know, they kind of go in and out. And so they really want to connect more with individual donors, but it can be hard because they're just individual people. So one of the things that we are doing is this model of event called Pitch Forum, which um, comes off of the sort of Silicon Valley um, way that investors interact with entrepreneurs. So we just did this event um, a few weeks ago that Kristen was at, um, and we where we invited and uh, vetted a number of groups, and six groups sort of pitched their best ideas around local um, economic inequality work in the Bay Area, and we had our donors there, and they just were able to hear directly from the leaders and then interact with them afterwards and so and it was a great success everybody liked it and so for us it was like what can we learn from the private sector and what they do well and apply to um, philanthropy and grant making I'll just say that I was lucky enough to meet Jane Goodall before I had philanthropic capital and it was one I mean everyone should be lucky enough to meet Jane Goodall but um, <laughs> But listening to her, as we all know, she is so passionate about the chimpanzees. And she really, it took her a while. And so just thinking about what came before us, all of her learning theory and just strategy about saving those chimpanzees really came from looking at an ecosystem view. And so to save the forest, she had to really start thinking about people. And people are not her passion. She will tell you that. <laughs> um, but she had to start being compassionate with people and what the needs of the people were so that she could really get to the cause that she really cared about. So just thinking about what are all the different places and parts and people in the ecosystem and um, what that meant. And so for her, it meant educating people so they would have fewer children who would chop down the forest at a slower rate. And, you know, there, it was a complicated system, and yet she's spent her life devoted to that for her one thing. So I feel lucky to have that learning that came before us. Please. Yeah. Um, earlier, I think it was you, Kristen, had said something to the effect, 
can I lift this up? Yeah, that's better. Um, something to the effect that uh, the the there wasn't the vehicles yet to invest personal 401ks in viable um, carbon-free and even re renewable generating funding and investments. And I'm wondering if that's really the case or if there are ways in which you can begin to move your personal retirement. It's one thing to lobby within a a large company that has a 401k and talk to them about how they're going to invest, but for the individual. So I think there's a lot of us that know that we're right in that struggle right now and that some it's company by company, right, what they allow in their 401k and how that works. And so um, it's, I mean, it's pretty difficult. I think we need a lot more retail pro products and I think we need a lot more things. I think um, even starting with the pension plans that are, you know, thinking, redoing, thinking about the way that they're doing their investing, but it's really company by company. And then, you know, a lot of people will do their own self-directed 401k. Well, that's sort of my question. If, you, if, if you have your own personal 401k, are there vehicles out there where you can, you know, oh, instead absolutely. of having in a mutual fund A, B, and C, in mutual, because the, the research I've found socially a responsible investment can mean they don't invest in guns, they don't invest in tobacco, but right. do they Alcohol. invest in coal? Sure. Um, do they invest in, you know, any number of things that I wouldn't be interested in? But are there funds that are specifically, say, technology, green technology funds and things like that where you can invest in a, a, a narrow band of things you believe in? Yeah, I'll say a couple things and then I'm sure Tom has a lot to say on this. So. Um, I mean, that is one of the tricky things is that you get into like a gender lens fund. Well, you know, Philip Morris does really well when you think about gender. And so you have to really think about what you're screening for and where you want to go. Um, there are definitely, you're going to want to be in some mutual funds that, you know, are meeting your values. And taking a look under the hood can be difficult sometimes in getting to really understand what they're, what they're in. But we can sure talk about what, what the possibilities are. So with all the disclosures that future performance, you know, doesn't past performance, no reflection of future performance, blah, 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 this is not a recommendation, okay, because I don't know your risk return thing, blah, blah, blah. There, the, the, we can guarantee this will work. <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> but uh, I do think there, there, in the, if you're looking for carbon-free specifically, for, oh, first, let's deal with alternative energy. There's a few funds that are out there. The New Alternatives Fund, which was founded in 1983 by David Schoenwald. It's an old fund that's been out there. It's renewable energy-based. Uh, it's got a long track record. You have the Calvert Water Fund is another fund that's out there. It's run by KBI. They have a good fund that's working. In, in the, and there, there's others you can look for, okay? The, if you're looking for carbon-free where it's by prospectus, the mutual fund companies have not caught up with the movement yet. Some of them have, and they're doing more and more, but as an example, the largest SRI mutual fund company, Calvert, has not put it into prospectus yet. It takes some time to go through that process, and they're going through that process now. Some of their funds may not have carbon reflected in them, but the prospectus doesn't say they can't. They have all the other screens in place. Now, we had, as you saw, and Andy, I'm going to ask you to comment on this, is, is been designing a database because of the fact this has really been, it's kind of an emerging movement, so the financial industry is trying to catch up. So we've been studying the different mutual funds. Do you want to go up, grab the microfest and just explain quickly what we've been doing? Because this it, is probably one of the more comprehensive pieces of work. This is Andy Bayer. He's the CEO of As You Sow. 
I, I'll, I'll be brief about it. We're, we're, we have a beta site right now called uh, fossilfreefunds.org that uh, what we've done is we've take, looked at the mutual funds that claim to be fossil free, that are fossil free by prospectus or fossil free by marketing. So they're stating it in their marketing. And we've looked at them under four different lenses because fossil free is really about definitions. So when you sign the, the divestment pledge, you're saying you're going to get out of the carbon underground 200. So that's 100 coal companies and 100 oil and gas companies. But you still own all the coal-fired utilities, you still own Halliburton, and you still own smaller oil companies. So we went down another level, and so we looked at all of the utilities, and we looked at also what are called oil, gas, and consumable fuels. It's, it's a global international standardization system of companies that are listed. So when you go to fossil-free, well, what you'll see is mutual funds, and then they're ranked by carbon underground 200. Do they hold that? Do they hold in utilities? Do they hold all these different things so that you can say, you know what, I signed the pledge, carbon underground 200 is good. I'm fossil free. But other people say, you know, I want to get out of the utilities. And other people say, I want to get out of the service industries. And I want to get out of, and you could just keep going because you might not want to hold FedEx because they're the largest user of, of fuel, um, of airline fuel and, and diesel fuel. So it just depends you know, where, how you make that judgment call. But we will be putting up this site that'll be free and everybody can look at it and we're gonna be adding more and more mutual funds that are held in 401ks so that you can go to your 401k administrator and say, you're not offering me anything that allows me to sign this pledge. And then you can get some of these funds that are. Right now there's 15 funds that we've identified as fossil free based on that, those definitions. And we're also putting up a site of clean tech. So, There'll be hundreds of clean tech companies like Tom described, and you'll be able to create little virtual portfolios and compare them to benchmarks. So, so Aunt, what's the name of the site again? <laughs> well, fossilfreefund.org, but you need a password right now. It's a beta site. <laughs> so I'm not going to give out the password right now. Because uh, <laughs> you crashed the system. <laughs> it's, coming, it's coming soon. And the other one is going to be a clean tech, um, a, a clean tech a tool. So you'll be able to play with all this stuff. Anyway. A lot of people since signing that investment pledge want to know exactly that. Like, what do I do? How do I make good on my, on, on my commitment? So, so call your mutual fund company, tell them that you want it done, especially in Calvert's case, and they'll move to do it more quickly. There's, there's three Calvert's funds on the Right, three. right. But, but like PAX has, you know, some too. There's the PAX no, Global. PACs are all off. Well, <laughs> they had the Global Green Fund. You call them, they may have one name. They'll remove the name. That happened with Green Century, where we called Lisa. You know, Sam, Leslie Samuelson, she removed the names. We showed the companies in the data sites, and then and I called up the mutual fund managers, and we found, you know, your, your fund looks good, but you got two people in Taiwan and Marcellus, so they sold those companies. So the key is advocate, and you'll get action if, if they're concerned about their brand. My name's Laura Lesher, and I have a question. And before I ask it, I just want to let people know about a brand new resource that was just launched this week, all about out-of-the-box philanthropy. It's called the Indie Philanthropy Initiative, and it describes nine different out-of-the-box kind of disruptions to the status quo of philanthropy, nine different styles of giving, and then has about 30 stories, including, I think, some of some people in this room. 
Um, so I feel really inspired by what you all have shared. It's indiephilanthropy.org, I-N-D-I. I've got some postcards if anyone's interested. And what I would love to know from you all is who are you most inspired by when you've chosen to go outside the box and do all these things that you've done? Who were the people who went before you or that you've been most inspired by to take the risks that you've taken? Well, for me, I have to say I'm just mostly inspired by the people on the ground doing the actual work. I mean, that's where I get my energy. That's where I get my excitement. Sure, I love being with other philanthropists and hearing about the work that they're doing and involved in, but it, uh, the bottom line all is the people that they're funding and helping and the people that are actually on the ground. So that's my inspiration. I agree with that. Um, I'm also, I am inspired by past movements that have made really big change as well as ongoing movements. Um, the civil rights movement is definitely a source of inspiration for me and um, looking at how they were able to make structural change, um, working together with people with wealth and activists on the ground. And um, I also would say the LGBT movement is, is very inspirational in the way that donors um, came to the table and said, like, we're not going to stand for this kind of milquetoast stuff, like we need to make big change, and really laying it down, and then um, together working with funders, together with activists, coming up with a core, like a common set of values and a common agenda that they then pushed. So I find that really inspirational when I think about what we can do, you know, in other social change movements. Yeah, I think it's everybody that just speaks truth to power. So one of my um, inspirations is in this room, and it's Josh Mailman. And um, I think that... I would agree. <laughs> um, between Joel Solomon, and he might be in the room too, um, but between Joel and Josh, I really was literally taken under Josh's wing at the one of the first SOCAPs, I think, and I was new to this world. And he moves at this pace that is um, admirable. And... Uh, he took me and introduced me within the scope of about 30 minutes, probably 50 entrepreneurs, and all of whom he was engaged with on one level or another, and I really got to see this can happen, change can happen by using our philanthropic capital to invest in um, some of these awesome companies. And so um, having those examples has been really tremendous for my own work. Yeah, and I would also say um, groups that bring philanthropists together, like the Threshold Foundation, which Josh was also the founder of, that really bring people together to, to explore, brainstorm, think out of the box. I mean, so these people who've been in this organization, this, this foundation, have just brought forth amazing things. So to be in that type of energy, in that type of world, is really exciting and really helps uplift all that we're trying to do. Yeah, hi. My name is uh, Ida. I arrived here two days ago from uh, the German-speaking world. I'm German living in uh, Switzerland. I got my master's degree uh, in uh, California, MBA. I have a business in Berlin and I studied permaculture and I'm involved in community work in, in Europe and um, came back here. I was thinking about going, coming back to the States or not because the image of this country around the globe is is really ha is has gone down the drain it is finished i mean the image of the united states is finished and you really <laughs> yes it is i mean 
<laughs> and it is very sad. I'm, 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 I want to bring this back to you. You know, I've been educated here. I got my business idea when I was studying here. And it's like, it's devastating to see how this country is perceived internationally. And it's not really on the agenda here. I mean, you have great things on the agenda, perfect, but you have to consider how this country is being viewed and what the government, the military-industrial complex, you know, divest from the military-industrial complex. That's, that's uh, you know, saving CO2 big time if you don't have to fuel these, these big ships and whatever. That's, that is a very big issue. What is being inflicted by the CIA and the NSA and all of these organizations globally, the chaos being inflicted by the United States, you have to look at that. Chaos is being inflicted to get cheap resources. And, uh, and, and we, we have to do something about it because there's karma being built up. You, people are not aware about here. Can you I have to consider that. And um, can I can I get you to frame that the, into a question? Yes, the, this is just <laughs> the question uh, is is a is a wish that you that you expand your ad, again agendas even like they're, they're great like the women move, women's move, movement and you know to put these these topics on and um, and then uh, something else what I what came up is like I went to the the Whole Foods store and uh, to, to go shopping. And the, the food prices are just unbelievable. I mean, it has to be on the agenda that the people at, at large can afford healthy food. It's just, it's like a, it's like a you know, to, healthy food has to be cheaper. And uh, please put that on the agenda. And, and um, the atomic industry, Yes. Yes, thank you yes, very, yes. very much. We are about yes. to run out of time. No, I'm, I'm, I, just want, I just have one more sentence. It's, it's the atomic industry. Germany has, has made uh, the pledge to go out totally. Here you have the direct effects even from Fukushima. What is happening here in the States about this topic? Thank you. Okay. I'm just going to say a tiny bit so that you know that you've been heard. And at NIA Global Solutions, we really are taking on some of those things. And so some of our portfolio companies are publicly traded companies that are actively working on um, organic and non-GMO foods and making sure that the prices are affordable and that the access is there. So I'll just say that that's one piece that I personally am working on. And I'll also <laughs> want to say that, yeah, I think we do understand it's happening. It's just so overwhelming and so huge. So we kind of go out into our space where we think we can do something. But I think really everyone in this room does know it's happening. And we can't stand it either. It brings us great pain. Many, many of us. And so, um, yeah, I just think that's why we're just trying to do what we can do in the space that we're in. And hopefully, we're really trying to build movements in all different ways. There's many people working on it. So keep your fingers crossed for us. <laughs> Germany's a tremendous leader in the renewable energy field, and thank you very much for taking the lead on that. Hopefully you'll allow Draghi to actually allow stimulus to take place, because I think that's where you guys are kind of a little bit off the mark. Our country won't change until we get rid of Citizens United. 
because the politicians are bought and paid for. The politicians, and Sarah Strand's working out with Free Speech for Power right over here. Jeff Clements just wrote a second book. They're working on getting rid of Citizens United by an amendment. And until that happens, okay, the politicians are bought and paid for by the corporate interests, and you're not going to get regulations in place that allow the United States to return to the country that it was before. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you could maybe just, I'm Christina, hi. Um, I'm wondering about things that blur the kind of hybrid fiscal investment opportunities. Uh, don't want grants, don't want a board, things that blur uh, uh, profit and nonprofit uh, places. I'm, I'm interested in authors or websites or networks that are working for making opportunities and funds available for green entrepreneurs. And not microloans, I don't want a microloan. So, uh, still individuals hooking up, but... Josh, Josh any networks there, baby? Best of circle, <laughs> Okay, whoa, whoa. Oh, you're not done? Oh. I'm done. She she wants to yeah, yeah. Oh. Ready? Okay. The gentleman right there in the blue-green jacket. <laughs> <laughs> I think Indiegogo is You think crowdfunding? Yeah, well, they're, they're doing crowdfunding, but not for startups. They want to see stuff going. A lot of naturalist companies have been circled up and oh, and Indiegogo, not Kickstarter. Well, you can't no, Kickstarter, no, yeah. Well, you can raise money. You'd be duct taping. Mosaic. And do we have any authors we would recommend? Maybe just a name or two. No, I'm just loving that it's the audience. We don't actually do food. Okay, so we can. Anybody from the panel with a book that would address this? We're we're smaller, but not startup. Okay. Can you just clarify? You're saying you're. I'm confused. I'm, I'm, well, and actually, right now I'm hunt, like I'm I'm stumbling a little because you're I'm, an entrepreneur. Uh, I work for an entrepreneurial feminist company in Seattle. Okay. Yeah, and we're doing really cool things with permaculture, but we're for profit. Um, we're not huge. We're not public. So just looking for ways to um, collaborate with people who have money but don't need to necessarily. Um, like when you were talking about people giving money uh, without saying how it needs to be used. In other words, beyond the scope of grant or beyond the scope of... <laughs> Slow money, I'm looking for slow money. That'd be awesome. So, so you've got a lot of volunteers a, okay, to, ta yes, to talk to you offline. <laughs> I'm going to make sure we get our last question. Thank you. I Thank appreciate you. it. Hi, Thanks I'm for Nita Winter. And um, my husband and I are working on a documentary art project called Beauty and the Beast, Wildflowers and Climate Change. It's our, wildflowers are our passion, and we realize it's a very common passion. And it attracts people's attention, and we want to use it to do environmental education with the project and calls to action and get people to, 
to, to make the connection between their lifestyle and their effect on the planet on multi-levels. Um, are there any suggestions on how, when there are a number of foundations we've come across that only come to you. You can't apply to them. But we're so small at this point, but our impact is going to be huge because we have major partnerships with the California State Foundation, um, California State Parks Foundation with 138,000 members. Um, we're creating an affiliate program which will raise money for nonprofit environmental groups all over the country. Do you have suggestions on, we found perfect matches with some of these foundations that won't take applications, but we're not big enough for them to have found us. Do you have any suggestions on projects on that level? This is stills, and it's gonna, the first part of it's gonna be a book, but. Photography. <laughs> Okay. 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 Great. Yeah, I mean that that, that was going to be my suggestion as well. Um, there, those women are involved in our group, fledgling fund, and um, chicken and egg. Um, I don't know if it like the good pitch is also another place where you can. Um, but that's, oh, it's not a film, right. Okay, sorry, never mind. <laughs> I mean, we have a fiscal agent. We're part of Blue Earth Alliance, so we can take donations. But it's that whole thing of how do you get and then sort of through the, the Indiegogo idea as well. Yeah. Indiegogo's been amazing. We actually, I'm a founder of Hub Oakland, and we use Kickstarter to start our both social media campaign and our donation campaign, and that was amazing for us. Um, I also just learned in this session right before this one that Paul Stamets, from him, the mushroom guy, you know, he said that wildflowers grow much better in mycelium, and he's got this whole thing about that. So he probably knows who funds the mycelium and the wildflowers and all of that as well. Yeah, because we'd love to, we want to put in an essay about soil because people don't realize how, criti how critical that is to the whole system. And you they can check into grant makers in the arts. So get on their website and check out what foundations and organizations mm -hmm. are a part of that. That might give you some leads too. Grant makers okay. in the arts. Thank you. So we are almost out of time. Just in our last moment, are there any, none of you guys think small, are there any next steps that we should be watching for, for things that you're thinking about that are on the horizon? Or you're ready to go and eat some dinner. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to make a plug for voting. The only, <laughs> for voting. Oh, for voting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It, it is, and I mean, and I think, I don't know how many of us fund voter initiatives, but I mean, the, I'm guessing the people in this room vote, but it is amazing how many people don't vote. And that is a big passion of mine. And so all of these issues that all of us are so passionate about can be changed with that vote. So that's my little, that's right. Yeah, November 4th. <laughs> All right, thank you so much to all of you, and thank you everyone for coming. This is going to be the next